0: Have your Bibles, if you please turn to, scroll to, flip to First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. And if you're wondering where 1st Peter is, it's in the second half of your Bible. It's in what's called the New Testament. We're going to be looking near the end of the New Testament, 1st Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at just two verses to start off with today. 1st Peter chapter 3 verses 15 and 16. And as you're flipping to that, as you're scrolling to that or if you don't have a Bible, we also have it on the screen as well. Can I ask everyone to stand? Let's all rise to our feet as we read the word of God together this morning. I'm going to ask you to read in a big loud voice. We believe that God's word is powerful. Has the power, it has the power to change our lives. And so let's read this in a big, loud voice as we get into the Word of God this morning. Let's read it together. It says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed Others slander, You know, sometimes when I read scripture, I kind of gloss over it the first time. So let's go back to verse 15. We're just going to read verse 15 on its own once again. Let's read in a big, loud voice. Let's, can we do it like 10 times louder? Can we do it? One, two, three. It says, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. We're doing a series here at Thrive. It's called Overcome My Unbelief. And in this series, what we're doing is we're taking a look at some of the biggest questions that people have about Christianity. And in some cases, these are some of the biggest objections that people have. In some cases, these are some of the biggest criticisms that people have about the Christian faith. And if you're here and you're just exploring Christianity and you're new to all this, I'm so glad that you're here. I hope that you find that Thrive Church is a safe place for you to explore your questions. If you've been here for a long time or you've been a Christian for a while, I hope you find this series helpful as well as you, you know, learn some ways that you can answer People who have questions about why you believe what you believe, just like what you know we read in First Peter, that we'll be able to give the reason for why we hope, and doing it with gentleness and respect. And so we've looked at a number of different questions so far. In episode one, we talked about the relationship between science and faith. Is Christian faith compatible with science? We looked at in episode one. In episode two, we looked at the reasons why we believe in God. Are there historical, scientific, philosophical, and other evidence that point to the existence of God? We looked at in episode. 2. In episode 3, what we talked about, we talked about how can a loving God exist in a world with evil and suffering. In episode 4, we talked about hell. Can God, can a loving God really send people to hell? Does God really send people to hell? Episode 5, we looked at the Bible. Everyone say the Bible. And we looked at can you really trust the Bible, not just as a historical document, but as the Word of God. Last week, we looked at a really important question, which is how can Jesus be the only way to God, as Christians seem to say. Today, we're looking at an equally important question. And it's a question that a lot of people often have. And if you're exploring, maybe you have this question as well. The question is this, how can I believe when some Christians are hypocrites? How can I believe in Jesus when the Christians in my life are hypocrites? And so with that in mind, would you please, before you take your seat, would you turn to the people around you and maybe even give them an air high five and a smile and say, I hope I'm not a hypocrite. Please have your seats. I hope I'm not a hypocrite. You know, one of the biggest questions that people tend to have, especially when they're exploring the Christian faith, is how can I believe when some Christians are hypocrites? Doesn't the fact that people who claim to be Christians but don't act like it, doesn't it show that Christianity doesn't work? You know, if Christianity claims to do so much good for people, if it's so life-changing, if Jesus talks so much about love, why is it that people who claim to be Christians do things that are just as bad as people who are not Christians? You know, why is it that whenever I turn on the news or I listen to the radio, or I go on the internet, is that whenever I read anything about Christians, it always seems to be something about some latest scandal involving a Christian leader, or Christians hating on some group, or expressing their angry opposition at something. Why is it that there are wars that are carried on in the name of Christ? What about oppression, and all these different types of witch hunts and violence that have been done in the name of Christianity? How do we respond to questions like that? You know, let me begin by letting you know something that happened to me nine years ago, about nine years ago. Nine years ago, my wife Charlene and I, we were expecting our first child, and we were super excited, and we were pregnant. Well, she was pregnant, uh, and uh, you know, I was expecting with her and super excited about the baby, and we obviously wanted to give this baby a name. And so what we did was we bought all these name books for babies, uh, it had all these lists of different names and the meanings attached to them. And we're really excited trying to find out which name, which name should we choose. And we had a, a couple things that we were looking for. One, we wanted a name that sounded good. Uh, you know, a name that, that sounded nice. A name that wasn't easy for people to you know, make fun of. Uh, the other thing was the meaning of the name. We wanted the, the name to, to mean something. Uh, and so those are two criteria. But the moment we found those like, names that met those cri- two criteria, all of a sudden, whenever we had a name, I would start thinking about one more thing. And you want know that be? is that whenever I'd find a name that I thought had potential, all of a sudden, I'd ask myself another question, which is, who do I know in my life that has this name? And do I have a good impression of them or not? And if I did, to be really transparent with you, when I would consider a name that sounded nice, that had a nice meaning, but then I thought of someone who had the name and I didn't have the best impression of them, I'd be like, I forget that name. Don't, don't, don't use that name at all. But if there's someone that had, uh, if we had a name that sounded nice and had a, you know, a, a pretty good meaning, and we knew someone who had that name, like, oh, yeah, okay. I, I, that, that one's still an option. And that's why we didn't name uh, our, our son the following names. I'm kidding. I'm not going to tell you what names they are. All right. The fact is this is that, you know, for us, what was going on with Charlene and me when it came to naming our baby, our decision whether to embrace a name or to reject a name had to do more with our experience with people who bore that name than the the actual meaning of the name itself. And why do I mention that? It's because when it comes to Christianity, don't you find that for a lot of people it's the same thing? It's that it's not so much the meaning of Christianity, the meaning of the message, but for a lot of people it's who do I know who bears that name? And do I have a good impression of that person or not? See, no one processes Christianity in a vacuum. As if they're simply weighing intellectual arguments and objective evidence. Because as important as these intellectual questions are, which we've been looking at during the series, the fact is that how open or closed a person is to Christianity will be affected by the kind of personal interactions and personal experiences that they have with Christians and churches in the past. If you believe that, say amen. And so if you had good experiences with Christians, you find oh they're, they're they're nice, they're they're loving, they're wise, they're insightful, you know, then you're like, you know what, I, I'm more open to the intellectual arguments for Christianity. But if you had bad experiences with Christians or people who claim to be Christians, and you find that they were you know very self-righteous or arrogant or just hard to deal with, complaining a lot, very critical then you'll look at the intellectual arguments with Christianity, for Christianity, in not the same way. You may, might not be as open, might not be as accepting of it. In fact, there was a study that was done recently by the Barna Group, which is a research group, and they asked people who were not Christians, they asked, what is your biggest reason for not being a Christian? What is your biggest reason for rejecting Christianity? And you know, the top reasons that were given had less to do with the message of Christianity and a lot more to do with the way Christians lived. They thought, you know, Christians are hypocritical. Christians are anti-this and anti-that. Christians are self-righteous. Christians are intolerant. It's no wonder that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, he would say, let your light shine before people that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It's because Jesus knew that people see Christianity by the way that they interact with the people who claim to be Christians. And even more important than the rational reasons we give, For Christianity, it's the way that we live. And so since we're talking today about hypocrisy, can I ask you a question? What is a hypocrite? What is a hypocrite? Anyway, let me give you a definition for hypocrisy that I think will help us today. I encourage you to take some good notes as we get into the Word of God. Today, do I have a proactive church here in this place this morning? Yeah, awesome. Let's go into it right now. What is a hypocrite? You can write this down. A hypocrite is someone who claims to believe or live up to a certain standard, but whose real-life behavior shows that they don't really believe or live that way. See, if you're someone who does not like hypocrisy, whether you see it in you know, politics or you see it in the business world or you see it you know, even within your own circles, guess what? Jesus has something in common with you because Jesus spoke against hypocrisy more than anyone else in the Bible. In fact, you know, the Greek word for an actor back in ancient Greece was hypocrites. In fact, that's where we get the word hypocrite. It's because back then in ancient Greece, actors would put on a mask and they would pretend to be someone that they're not. They would claim to be someone that they're not in the context of a play. Jesus took hold of that word, and he applied that to spiritual actors. People who would claim to be a certain way, but underneath would live a different way. And that's why you will find when you read the Gospels that Jesus reserves some of his harshest and strongest language, not for people who don't go to church, not for people who don't believe in God, not for people who've never read the Bible, but for religious people who've been doing all those things for years, but who weren't living the way they were claiming. And so, in fact, let's read a couple from Matthew chapter 23, starting at verse 13, there's going to be the word woe that comes a lot. A lot of them go, woe. Woe And woe is not a woe, like kind of like, what's going on? But woe is actually a curse. It's, a, it's, it's the strongest word that a prophet back in the Old Testament would give when he was criticizing or rebuking a group of people. And this is Jesus speaking to some of the religious establishment of Israel at the time. Look at verse 13. It says, read it with me a big loud voice. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Drop down to verse 23. What does it say? It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former." What's Jesus saying? He's saying, hey, you guys are so, so, you know, intent and so careful about tithing, giving a tenth of your income to the church. That's good, but you shouldn't be doing that while ignoring the more important things of justice, mercy, and faithfulness You want to do both, not just one and not the other. Look at verse 25. He says this. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. See, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is speaking against hypocrisy. He's pointing out ways that apparently religious people are claiming to be a certain thing but living a completely other thing. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, you know, Peter, he's writing to all Christians everywhere, and this is what he writes. Read it with me. He says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. It's saying, you know, get rid of hypocrisy. See, Jesus spoke against hypocrisy. The Bible speaks about hypocrisy as something that we want to get rid of to the extent that we have that in our lives now here's the thing as much as jesus spoke against hypocrisy let me tell you why if you're exploring christianity today you're not a christian but you've got questions about christianity you're just exploring let me tell you why it is dangerous to base your decision whether to embrace or reject christianity simply based on the christians so-called christians that you meet can i give you a couple reasons why let me get into right now number one Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is, in fact, a Christian. That's just a fact. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is, in fact, a Christian. Look at Matthew chapter 7 verse 15. This is Jesus talking once again. What does he say? Read it with me. It says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into into the fire. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Verse 21 says, not everyone who says to me, lord, lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, lord, lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, i never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers." See what is Jesus saying? Jesus is essentially saying, anyone can claim to be my follower. Anyone can claim to be a Christian, just like anyone can claim anything they want. But just because they call themselves a Christian doesn't mean they actually are one. See, what is a Christian anyways? I want to give you a couple definitions, a simpler one and then a more involved one. And the first one is this, you can write this down. A Christian is someone who has a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. A personal saving relation with Jesus Christ. Notice that this definition of a Christian has nothing to do with perfect performance. It has everything to do, rather, with relationship. Why? It's because if you had to be perfect before you became a Christian, if being perfect was a prerequisite to being a Christian, then none of us would be Christians. None of us would, because being a Christian is not about being perfect, but being a Christian is about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we know about Christianity. Here's a second definition for Christianity. You can write this one down too. A Christian is someone who realizes they're a sinner, who needs a Savior, who believes that Savior is Jesus Christ, and in response to God's love and with God's help is trying to live a life that pleases God. See, notice that this definition is also not about perfection. It's about authenticity. It's about saying, okay, I know I'm not perfect, but I believe I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I believe that Jesus who died on the cross for my sins is that savior. And I want to live my life in response to his love by wanting to please him. What is that about? It's not about performance. It's not about perfection. What's it about? It's about authenticity. It's about saying, I may not be like where I want to be, but at least I'm not where I used to be because I'm trying to follow Jesus. See, that's what being a Christian is about. It's about relationship. It's about authenticity. And so what does that mean? What that means is on one hand, just because someone says they are a Christian doesn't automatically mean that they are a Christian. On the other hand, just because that person makes a mistake doesn't mean they're not a Christian. Amen? So, in other words, don't be so quick to judge. See, on one hand, just because someone says, yeah, I'm a Christian, doesn't necessarily mean that they are. And just because someone makes a mistake, they go to church, they read their Bible, but they make a mistake, that by itself doesn't mean that they are not a Christian. We just can't be so quick to judge. Turn your neighbor and say, please don't be so quick to judge. Thank you for that. That's great. Number two, number two, what's the second reason why if you're exploring Christianity, you don't want to let other Christians and their experience, your experience with them be the only indicator of whether you will receive or reject Christianity? Here's number two, is in Christian churches, you will find and meet a wide variety of people who are at different points in their spiritual journey and who are at different levels of maturity. See, you're going to find this. In any church, you're going to have some people who are just exploring issues of faith. They're not Christians. They're not, they don't have a relationship with Jesus. They're just kind of checking out Jesus. They're checking out the Bible. They're checking out Christianity. They're not yet Christians. We love having people who are exploring here at Thrive Church. Love it. Love it. Can't have enough of them. We love having you. If you're just exploring, we're so glad that you're here. You are so welcome here. You can call throughout church your home. Another one is this. Is we've got baby Christians. People who just received Jesus very recently. Maybe they just got baptized. Even the guys who got baptized last week. you know, And you're just very new to everything. You just started a relationship with Jesus. You're like a newborn baby who's just been born, and everything is very new. And you still maybe have some stuff in the past that you're dealing with. Maybe some habits, some baggage that you're dealing with. But you're a baby Christian. You've got a relationship with Jesus. There's those of you who... Poor baby Christians. There are others of you who have been going to church for years. You know, all the, you, know, you know all the verses, you know all the songs, you know all the lingo. You might even be serving. But because you've never actually given your heart to Jesus, then there's actually no relationship. And so you're actually a churchgoer, but you're not a Christian. Is that you you go to church, you know all the motions, you do all the motions of every service, but because there's no real relationship there, you're actually not a Christian. And, and that, that's actually part, partly what Jesus described when he says, you know, many will say, Lord, Lord, uh, you know, did we not do this in your name? And he'll say, get away from me. I don't know you. It's because it's not just about those things, those traditions, what you grew up with. It's about a relationship with Jesus. And so there's maybe maybe you're in that boat. Or maybe you're here and, and and we have a lot of people in this boat as well. Is that you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while. You you opened up your heart to Jesus maybe as a kid, maybe as a teenager, maybe later on in life and you have a relationship with Jesus. It's a sincere relationship with Jesus. Is it a perfect relationship with Jesus? No, it's not. It's got ups and downs. There's still ways that you know we got to be growing up. There's still immaturity that we're dealing with, but by and large because we have this relationship with jesus it brings benefit in our lives we grow and become more like jesus christ and we're still growing as we speak and so these are these are different types of people that you're going to find in church not everyone is the same in fact in every case what you're going to find is one thing guaranteed you're going to find in every case immaturity yeah in every case there's going to be some or maybe a lot of immaturity and that's because the fact is the church you got to understand what the church is. See, do we kick out all the non-authentic Christians and say, "Get out of church. get out of our church. You're not welcome here. We only want the authentic ones. We only want the serious ones." No, you got to remember what the message of the gospel is. Is that when we had no way of reaching God, God reached for us. When we had turned our backs on God and said, God, I'm gonna do things my way, not your way. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm gonna live my life my way, and I don't care about what you have to say. But God said, you know what? that's fine. You want to have it that way? You're separate from me, but because I love you and I don't want to be apart from you for eternity, I want to find a way to reach you. So we sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have a way back to God. It's because God could not bear the thought of being apart from us forever, so he sent Jesus Christ to be the Savior that we need so that anyone who trusts, not in what they themselves do, but in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, they are forgiven of their sins, they become children of God, they become citizens of heaven, they are reconciled to God, and as a result, they become recipients of eternal life. Come on, if you believe it, give God a big, big hand here at this place right now. And see, here's the thing. Let me ask you a question. If that's the message of Christianity, if the message of Christianity is not that you are saved based on how good you are, You're not saved based on your performance or what impressive resume you can bring to God. If you're not saved by any of those things and you are simply saved because of God's undeserved kindness called his grace, what does that mean? If that's the case, what do you expect the church to be like? What kind of people do you expect the church to be filled with? You know who they will be? You're going to find lots and lots of broken people. Lots and lots of people who realize I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I've still got baggage. I've still got issues. I've still got brokenness. There's still mess in my life. Those are the people you will expect to fill our churches. And is that a good thing? That's a great thing. Amen? Because let me tell you today, the church is not a country club for perfect people. The church is a hospital for sinners. The church is not this exclusive private country club for people who have no issues and they're just sipping their tea and paying their dues and complaining about the server and complaining about the food and being this super exclusive club just talking about themselves. No, the church is a hospital for broken people. It's for people who say, I don't have it all together. I've got issues. I've got stuff in my past that I'm dealing with. But I know one thing. I know that that God is who I need. I know that Jesus is the savior that I need, or at least I'm thinking in that direction now. And so therefore I'm going to church. That's what the church is. It's a hospital for sinners. And so the fact is this, you might be, well, JB, shouldn't the church try to heal these people, fix these people? Well, we try to, we do our very best to, See, that's why here at Thrive we've got stuff like small groups. we got Thrive discipleship School. We try to bring the best, most practical, most relevant, most applicable, most helpful teaching we can Sunday after Sunday. We give you prayer meetings. We try daily game sharings where we talk about, you know, we read the Bible together and we teach you how to pray on a daily basis. We do all those things together because this is us saying, you know what? We want to help you grow and become healthy and strong and have a vibrant relationship with Jesus. But can we force people to do it even if they're in the church? No, we can't. No, we can't. So you're, you're going to have people who are making use of the resources and saying, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm growing. I'm getting stronger. I'm maturing. I'm getting healthy. Awesome. And we see that over and over again here at Thrive. But you're also going to have a group of people who will be, you know what? No, thanks. Small group? Nah. TDS? to sub School? No. You know, you know like perming? Oh, please. You know, like game time? Ugh. And they're just basically kicking everything away. And you know what? The fact is this. To use a hospital analogy, here at Thrive Church, Thrive Hospital, whatever you want to call it, we do our very best to offer the best help, the best care, the best treatment we can. But if a patient refuses treatment, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. It's because it's a two-way street. If you believe us, say amen. So what's the point here? Is that when you meet a churchgoer and you're struck by their immaturity, don't assume that all church people are the same. Don't assume that everyone is like that. Because there's such a wide variety of people who go to church. Everything from people just exploring, to people who are very very committed in their relationship with God, to people who are kind of just you know not really sure what they're doing, and, and everything in between. And remember this, is that the fact is, the bar to becoming a Christian is set low because God wants everyone to come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to perish. And the bar to come to church is set even lower because God loves everyone. And he wants to reach everyone as well. Come on, if you believe I give God a big, big hand here this place right now. And so if you meet someone who claims to be a Christian and who's a bit immature, I've just got one word for you, duh. Because the fact is, we're all immature. We've all got stuff we're working through. But praise God, if we are willing to open up our heart to Jesus, not just one moment, but on a daily basis, giving God more room in our lives, we grow up. We become more mature. We become the healthy, strong people that God made us to be. If you believe that, say amen. But J.B., what about atrocities that have happened in the name of Christ over the centuries? You know, you look at the Crusades, the Inquisition, witch hunts. Let's talk about that right now. See, the Christian crusades, and I even hesitate to even use the word Christian in association with the crusades, but the crusades that happened in the Middle Ages from about 1100 A.D. to 1300 A.D., this was about national conquest. This is about, you know, the, the European countries who are Christian by name, who are trying to take over different parts of what they consider to be the Holy Land. And, you know, when I, well, the more I read about the Crusades, the more my heart breaks, because I think to myself, how, how, how do they call this Christian in any kind of way? How do they call it Christian? And the fact is, the number of people who died, you, like, back then, it's tough to get an accurate estimate, but you, you ask different scholars, and it'll be a range of anywhere between 500,000 people to 10 million people who died during the, those Crusades in that 200-year span from 1100 A.D. to 1300 A.D., there's the European witch hunts, which happened uh, you know, around the same time, 1200 to 1500 AD, where they killed about an estimated 40,000 people. Uh, you have the American witch hunts of Salem, which killed about 19 people. Around the same time period as the European witch hunts, you have something called the Inquisition, where priests would put heretics, what they considered to be heretics, on trial, subject them to torture, and, and in, in about the case of approximately, some scholars say, about 2,000 people uh, those, ones, those heretics, quote-unquote, were executed over a period of centuries. And see, this is part of Christian history. It's an embarrassing part of Christian history. It's a, it's a shameful part of Christian, of Christian history. And, and that's also why some proponents of atheism, such as Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, they will use this as evidence to say, you know what, that shows that religion poisons everything. That shows that religion does nothing but create conflict, violence, oppression, And that the world would be far better off without any religion of any sort. How do you respond to something like that? How do you respond to all this very violent history of people doing things, awful, inexcusable things in the name of Jesus? See, here's the thing. If you're a Christian, can I encourage you to take a humble approach. And acknowledge that horrible, inexcusable things have been done in the name of Christ. By people who evidently, probably did not know the first thing about Christianity. The fact is this, I don't know how you go from Jesus who dies on a cross for his enemies and says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. I don't know how you go from that to let's systematically torture and eliminate everyone who doesn't believe what we believe. I don't know how you get to that. I don't know how a Christian gets from one point to the other. And so it's about apologizing. It's about acknowledging. It's about admitting that, yes, this is a part of our history and it's an awful part of our history. And I'm so sorry. If you've ever been offended by that on behalf of Christians everywhere, I'm sorry and I apologize on behalf of the church and everyone who's ever been involved. You know, that's the first thing we do. We take a humble approach. The second thing is this, is that I would want to tell that person who has an issue with the history of the church is to say that, hey, it's, it's important to recognize that removing religion is not the answer because you're going to find, if you look at the past 100 years even, it is the fact that atheist and secular regimes have been responsible for far more violence and oppression Than anything done in the name of religion let me just give you an example take the past 100 years take the first three biggest atheistic regimes of the past 100 years you got hitler's nazi germany you got stalin's communist soviet union you've got mao's communist china each of these regimes believed and taught that religion is a poison and that you have to remove it and that religion is the cause to oppression, intolerance, intolerance, violence. And so what did they do? They eliminated anyone who had anything to do with religion. And they did oppression. They did torture. They did violence. They eliminated everyone. And so that's why you know, Hitler's Nazi Germany wiped out 6 million Jews, in addition to homosexuals, gypsies, other minorities. Stalin's communist Soviet Union, uh, according to certain estimates, killed about 20 million people. Uh, Mao's communist China according to various scholars, killed anywhere between 35 to 70 million of his own people. These are just the three biggest atheist regimes. We haven't even started talking about others. But you add all this up, and even just these three alone, you're looking at approximately 100 million people who died in the past 100 years in the name of atheism and secularism. And see, that number is so much, much greater than Any number you can come up with for the number of people who died because of the Crusades, the Inquisition, witch hunts, over a much longer period, like 500 years. That's why Alistair McGrath, who's a professor of religion and science at Oxford University, he writes this, he makes this observation, he says, the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history, that the greatest intolerance and violence of that century were practiced by those who believe that religion causes intolerance and violence. Isn't that ironic? It's the idea that, oh yeah, religion causes intolerance, violence, and oppression. And so, we're going to create violence, intolerance, and oppression on the religious people. And it end up being far more violence, far more killing than anything ever done in the name of religion. You know, oftentimes, what gets lost in all these arguments about Christian hypocrisy is how much good Christianity has done for the world, the first hospitals were Christian hospitals. The first universities were Christian universities. The American civil rights movement back in the '60s and '70s, led by Martin Luther King Jr., this was at its heart a Christian movement. It was this idea that people of every race are equal in the sight of God because God made every person in His image. You've got, you know, for example, the the you know abolition of slavery when the African slave trade was at its height. Who were the first people? People to stand up and say, slavery this way is wrong. Who was it? It was Christians like William Wilberforce, who despite nothing to gain for himself, he dedicated his life to saying, slavery must end now. And he was a huge part. And so many Christians that I didn't name were a huge part of bringing slavery to an end during the African slave trade. And so it's one of those things where we want to just not just recognize the the bad parts of the history, but the great parts of Christian history as well. Finally, you might wonder well, what about all those Christian fanatics that I see in the news? They're always railing against this or that. They're publicly railing against this group or that group, making their life mission to criticize others, even other Christians. Why is it that when I look at the news, that's all that I see? Well, let me tell you one of the reasons why it's what sells. If you look at secular media today, you're not going to hear much about oh this church is doing such great work, this pastor is doing amazing things, this you know Christian group, this charity is doing some awesome stuff, this 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 group of Christians is doing amazing. You're not going to hear about this, even though they're happening all over the world every single day. What you're going to hear about is the latest scandal. What you're going to hear about are you know people who are you know ranting and raving against this latest thing. Uh, It's one of those things. It's just it's just it's just the times of our it's it's just our times right now. And see you know for example I, I have a friend who grew up with a dad who was this extremely devout Christian. And, you know, he and his sister and his mom lived together with their dad. But here's what happened, is that this, the, the, his dad, my friend's dad, had this thing where, you know, he, he really, really took the call to take care of the poor very, very seriously um, he thought, you know, Jesus wants us to do this. So what he, you know, what he did, you know, how he, he took that call or how he applied that call? He, he went to his house and he took off all the locks on every door of his house, including the front door, including the back door, including the washrooms, including his master bedroom, so that poor people in his city could enter his house at any time of the day and use his house for themselves. Now, let me tell you this. How did the wife react? She's like, are you kidding me? Like, you're going to let anyone walk into our room at any time of the day? You're going to let anyone walk into our house at any time He's yes, because that's, that's me following the command to take care of the poor. Jesus wants us to take care of the poor. And you know what? As a result, his family left him. The wife left. The kids will not walk into a church today. And can I tell you this? In case you're exploring Christianity, can I just tell you, this thing about taking off the locks on all your doors, that's not normal, all right? You don't need to do that, all right? Because the fact is that as, as spiritual as that sounds, taking care of the poor, yes, we're called to take care of the poor. God has a heart for the poor. We want to have a heart for the poor. But at the same time, the Bible also says that those who do not take care of your own immediate family have denied the faith. And so very often you're going to find that religious fanatics, they will focus on one part of the Bible, take it to an extreme, and they miss the rest of the Bible. And so you've got to be really, really careful. And, and so some people will say, you know, religious fanatics, they, they're just, they've just gone overboard. They're just way too committed to their religion. They're way too committed to Christianity. Actually, let me put it to you another way. The, the truth is this. Religious fanatics are not way too committed to Christianity. They're actually not committed enough. What I mean by that? Let me ask Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author in New York City, to, to say it for me. He says it this way. He says, think of people you consider fanatical. They're overbearing. Self-righteous, opinionated, insensitive, and harsh. Why? It's not because they are too Christian, but because they are not Christian enough. They are fanatically zealous and courageous, but they are not fanatically humble, sensitive, loving, empathetic, forgiving, and understanding as Christ was. What strikes us as overly fanatical is actually a failure to be fully committed to Christ and his gospel. So whenever you see someone who's kind of like a religious fanatic, ranting and raving all these different things, criticizing everything in sight, then you got to understand this, is that it's not that they're too Christian. It's that they're not Christian enough. It's not that they're too committed to Jesus. It's that they actually have a lot more to learn about who Jesus is. If you believe it, say amen. See, what do we do with all of this? Well, let me give you a few suggestions. And these are for those of you who are exploring. It's also for those of you who are Christians. This first one is specifically for Christians. And you write this one down. If you meet a non-Christian who has an issue with Christians being hypocritical, take a humble approach. Acknowledge that wrong, horrible things have been done by people who claim to be Christians, whether they were really Christians or not, and apologize on behalf of all Christians anywhere. And if you've been turned off by Christianity, and you've been turned off by something that someone did who claimed that they were Christian, I'm so sorry. And on behalf of Christians everywhere, I apologize. I say that shouldn't have happened. It's an awful experience, and that should never have happened. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, and this is primarily for those who are exploring, but it's also for Christians as well. Judge the merits of Christianity not based on its fallible, imperfect followers, but on its founder, Jesus Christ. See what I mean by that? See, the message of Christianity will never be lived out perfectly by anyone on this earth. Never. Only Jesus himself. In fact, when you read the Sermon of the Mount and you read what Jesus teaches, his standard of morality is so incredibly high for a reason. To show you that this is God's perfect standard. And in part, indirectly, it's to show you there's no way you could reach that standard on your own. That's why we need a saviour. And so for as long as we're here on this earth, on this side of heaven, you will not ever find a single person, no matter how godly or how holy they seem, you will never find a single person who does it all, who has it done perfectly, who meets God's standard, Jesus' standard perfectly. That's because we're human. And the thing is this, instead of judging the merits of Christianity based on imperfect Fallible followers who might have even misunderstood or misapplied or even completely ignored the message of Christianity. Instead of doing that, judge the merits of Christianity on the one who started it all in the first place. His name is Jesus Christ. And see, since the foundation of our hope as Christians is not anyone else but Jesus focus on Jesus and what he said what he did not so much what this person said and what that person did when you're considering the merits of Christianity let me give you an example in case it's not clear enough see say you're in elementary you're, say, say say there's an elementary school band of beginning musicians have you those of you who grew up in Vancouver have you been part of an elementary school band of beginning musicians including yourself maybe you're playing, playing the descant recorder Ooh, do, do, do. Or or maybe a a melodion or a timpani. Imagine an elementary school band of beginning musicians who are just starting to learn to play one of the greatest pieces of music of all time, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. Right? That's Beethoven's Fifth, one of the greatest pieces of music of all time by one of the greatest composers, composers of all time. Say you have never heard Beethoven's music before. But you hear, you know what, I hear Beethoven's music is worth checking out. So you decide to go to one of the rehearsals of this elementary school band that's just learned to play music and just learning to play Beethoven. Keep in mind, this is an elementary school band that's just learning. And so a few weeks ago we talked about hell, weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you want a taste of what hell is like, go to one of these practices. There's going to be lots of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as you sit there in that rehearsal... What's going to happen? What are you going to hear? Are you going to hear the most beautiful music you've ever heard? No. You're going to hear a lot of unpleasant squeaks, a lot of unintended musical farts. You're going to hear all these things that you never expected to come out of Beethoven's music and you're like, oh my goodness, what is this? Why do I mention that? Let me ask you, would it be fair to judge Beethoven or Beethoven's music based on the very imperfect rendition the very imperfect performance of these elementary school students who are just learning how to play no it says so, oh have you heard of Be- have you ha- heard beethoven before oh yeah i did oh it's awful it's so bad oh my goodness it's like don 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 i'm like oh my goodness have you and people are like what are you talking about it's cuz you're just basing your judgment of beethoven on some fifth graders who have no idea what they're doing similarly why do i mention that don't judge jesus and his message based on the imperfect rendition of beginners and amateurs who are still trying to live out that message and learn how to do so see because you're gonna hear if you do that and that's all you focus on you're gonna hear all sorts of beep and then beep and then beep. you're gonna hear all the, all these farts and and squeaks that you that will just distract you from the original message and the one who gave it is that clear Let me give you another example in case it doesn't doesn't make sense. Imagine that you're drowning in a swimming pool. And there's a lifeguard there who reaches out his hand and says, come, let me save you. Come on, grab my hand. I'm reaching for you. Grab my hand. And say, you're just barely getting your head above water. But you still hear what he's saying. And you push him away and go, no. There's no way I'll ever consider having you save me. And, 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 and he's like, why, why not? Why don't you let me save you? It's, it's because, it's because I see all those people you've saved, and I don't like them one bit. It sounds silly, and you laugh, but the fact is this. The fact is that if you consider Christianity only Uh, If you refuse to consider Christianity because you haven't had a good impression of Christians, that's like you saying, I'm not going to let the lifeguard save me from drowning because I don't like the people that he has saved. Let me ask you this. Does it have anything to do with the people that he saved? It does not. It's not about them. It's about Jesus and you. And so while it's natural to reject Christianity because you haven't had a good impression of Christians, while it's very common for people to say, how can I believe when Christians are hypocrites, it's actually missing the point. Because one day when you stand before God, God is not going to ask you, what did those other people do with Jesus? He's going to ask you, what did you do with Jesus? So at the end of the day, it's not about them. It's about you and God. God. And so while Christians, it's true, need to take some responsibility for being bad examples, need to be bad representatives, we need to take admit it, apologize for it, and try not to ever do that again, you are, if, you're exploring, if you're exploring Christianity, we need to take responsibility ourselves as well. And say, okay, I know that these people might have distracted me from the truth, but let me see it for myself. Let me deal with God directly on this. Let me look at Jesus. Don't let imperfect copies take you away from the original. Amen. Leo Tolstoy, he's known as one of the greatest authors of all time. And he wrote War and Peace. He, wore, he wrote Anna Karenina. He won for five consecutive years the Nobel Prize in Literature. And uh, he was also a Christian. And this is what he wrote. He said, attack me rather than the path I follow, in which I point to anyone who asks me where I think it lies. If I know the way home and I'm walking along it drunkenly, Is it any less the right way because I'm staggering from side to side? See what he's saying? He's saying that he's like a drunken man. He's like, he is so immature, he's saying. He's still got so much growing up to do that he's like a drunken man who's just trying to go home. And he's staggering from side to side. But the fact is he knows where to go home. And maybe you're here in this place and you're exploring Christianity. And and you know lots of Christians, so-called Christians, who are staggering side to side vomiting everywhere they go and you're like oh my goodness who does that guy think he is that hypocrite that hypocrite but the fact is this at least he's going home and the fact is that if you would look at it carefully it actually has less to do with anything that person's doing and more to do with do you know the way home do you know if jesus is your way home so Don't let other people, other Christians, bad examples get in the way of the most important question, which is between you and Jesus. Turn to your neighbor, give them an air high five, and say, don't let the small thing get in the way. Number three. Number three. This is for everyone as well. Look in the mirror before you judge others. Look in the mirror before you judge others. Sometimes we can be so quick to judge others, can't we? So quick to, you know, think negatively about what they're doing you got to realize and i got to realize that we are just as broken and just as in need of god's grace as anybody else that's why the apostle paul he would write saying christ died for sinners of whom i am the worst paul one of the greatest christian leaders of all time led more people to christ than anyone else of his generation he said christ died for sinners of whom i am the worst it's because he realized that he needed God's grace as much as anybody else. We have to look in the mirror before we judge others. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 to 5. Jesus says, read it with me. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, what's he talking about? See, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that, oh, parents, leaders, teachers, pastors, you can never correct or rebuke the people that you lead. You can never correct or rebuke your, the people in your care. No, he's not saying that. There's, in fact, over and over in other parts of the Bible, it talks specifically about that. But what Jesus is saying here is that we need to be careful not to be hypercritical about the hypocritical. We need to be careful not to be hypercritical about the hypocritical. Is Oftentimes, you're going to find that the most critical people are the ones who have the biggest issues themselves. They actually don't even realize it. And so you got to be careful not to be hypercritical of the hypocritical, because if you're hypercritical of the hypocritical, you're going to be hypocritical as well. Amen. Number four. Number four. Repent of hypocrisy and respond to God's love and mercy expressed in Jesus Christ. See, I think maybe if there's anything that you get out of this message, it's the fact that we can all, if we're not careful, be hypocrites in our own ways. And in fact, if you scan all throughout human history, you will find that there's only one guy who did it perfectly, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the one we need. That's why we need a savior. And since we all can be hypocrites, let's not judge others so quickly as look to the one who was never a hypocrite. Look to Jesus Christ to be our savior and our king, because when we do so, we find our way home. We find peace, we find purpose, and we find that despite all of our weaknesses and other people's weaknesses combined, that these are not reasons to keep us from God's love. If you believe that, could you give God a big hand here in this place together right now? I'm going to ask our band to come up to the stage and they're going to lead us in a song. This brings our series called Overcome My Unbelief to a close. And I hope you've enjoyed this series. I certainly have learned a lot myself through this series. And I hope that at the end of the day, what you find is that with all these questions we've looked at, that there is a logical, reasonable, compelling reason to believe in Jesus. Are there other questions to answer? Yes, there are. we got a lot of different questions coming in, and unfortunately we don't have enough Sundays to take care of all of them. We'll hopefully get to those in the near future. But if you've been blessed or impacted in any way by this series, I would love it. It would mean a lot to me if you would go to mythought.info And sometime today, sometime this weekend, sometime this week, go and give us your feedback on how this series impacted your life because that'll help us as we go into the future. In the meantime, right now, let's all stand to our feet. I'm going to ask our band to lead us in a song. After that, I'll lead you in prayer and communion. Let's give our very best to God in this place. Can we give God a big hand here in this place together right now? Let's do that together.